Welcome to Aches and Gains, a weekly talk show covering all aspects of pain and pain relief. I'm Dr. Paul Christo, pain specialist at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Pain has reached epidemic proportions, and chronic pain affects a staggering 25% or more of the population. Its human impact is real and is felt by infants, children, all the way to older adulthood. But there's hope and there's treatment. This show offers compelling stories of those who found relief and offers insight into treatments that can ease pain and human suffering. It's not well known, but little people, that is those who have a condition known as skeletal dysplasia, often suffer at an early age from joint pain, nerve pain, and degeneration of the spine. These are due to unique changes in both cartilage and bone growth. We'll find out how Dee Miller, a little person, has moved past serious spinal pain and spinal surgeries to live her life fully. Then, Dr. William McKenzie, orthopedist and co-director of the Skeletal Dysplasia Program at the Nemours Hospital for Children, shares his insights into the best treatments for pain in this unique group. Aches and Gains is sponsored by King Pharmaceuticals, Endo Pharmaceuticals, Neurogesics, and Boston Scientific. Aches and Gains is also available live online. Follow us on Twitter at DRPaulCristo and like us on Facebook, Aches and Gains. To access podcasts of the show, please go to paulchristomd.com. That's paulchristomd.com. If you have questions or comments for Dr. Christo, especially for upcoming shows, please email him at achesandgains at gmail.com. That's achesandgains at gmail.com. Our guest today is Dee Miller, a little person who has a type of skeletal dysplasia called achondroplasia or dwarfism. She's here to talk about how she's moved past serious spinal pain and spinal surgeries to live her life fully. Dee, welcome to Aches and Gains. Thank you very much. Dee, tell us about how dwarfism has affected your life. Well, I have achondroplasia, and it's a type of skeletal dysplasia. At one time, I was four feet tall, but now I'm three foot ten. I'm 66 years old, and I've had two um, spinal surgeries because of spinal stenosis. Dee, tell us when your back pain from spinal stenosis began. My problem really started after my husband died, and I started taking on the heavier work around the house. Uh, so anyway, when I was you know, becoming the master of the house and doing the harder chores, I started developing problems with my lower back. And then later I learned that I had pulled the disc, and that was really limiting my walking. I was in, like, in my early 40s, you know. In the next couple of years, I mean, I was putting up with it, but I'm originally from Baltimore, so every time I'd come up here uh, to visit family, I would see, you know, one of the docs here at Hopkins who specialized in short stature because Hopkins is one of the world-renowned centers for individuals of dwarfism. And there are over 200 different types of dwarfism, which people don't understand. Achondroplasia is the most common. Yes, in fact, spinal stenosis is common in young adults with achondroplasia because the spinal cord is normal in size, but the narrowed spinal canal causes compression of nerves. Dee, tell us, did you have both back pain and shooting leg pain? Sometimes your legs would feel like they were going numb. They would get cold and then hot and then cold and hot. And then you felt like you just had to sit down right away because you didn't think they were going to hold you anymore. In in a couple of years, I was offered my job to come up here with Dr. Victor McCusick. And in 1990, I moved back up. Um, 
the pain was really getting worse. Of course, when you're a lot of tension in your life, you know, your pain increases as well. So by the time I got up here, I knew I was ready for surgery. So um, I, I arrived here in September, my job in 1990, and by June I was on the, the OR schedule to have a laminectomy. Before the laminectomy, how serious were your symptoms? It was miserable because you couldn't sleep, you know. I used to sleep on the floor and, and be a perfect L and put my legs up, you know, on the side of the bed, straight up in the air, and just trying, you know, to relieve or being in hot water all the time, you know, trying to just that warmth. And I couldn't detect whether the warmth was better than the cold putting ice on it. I mean, it just didn't seem to matter very much at all. Dee, tell us about the results of the first spinal surgery, the one where they operated on you from the mid-back down to your buttock. That's pretty big surgery, you know, thoracic lumbar. And, you know, it was like I could feel the pressure was gone just while I was lying on my back. But once I was able to get on my feet, you know, I had like 15, 16 years of being back to day one when you never had any problems. That's terrific. Now, did the pain come back? Little by little, it, it gradually started filling back in. The doctor said it was the adhesions compromising that space. So I went to border therapy. Uh, the main thing was trying to keep your weight down and uh, just trying to stay active and, and keep moving. You know, when you know you're going back to the spot you were in at one time and you're anticipating that pain to return, every little uh, ache or tweak, you know, you feel like, oh my, is this going to be it? You know, here we go again. So do you had 10 good years of pain relief and then you needed a second surgery? I can't lie on my back now. <laughs> well, in January of 08, I had a second surgery where they went and re-decompressed some of the area from the first area that had re-stenosed. And also, um, they did fusion from T10 to L4. So tell us, after the second surgery, what are you taking to help reduce your pain? Now, I switch, like, I mean, one week I'll do Tylenol, extra strength Tylenol. But I have to take, like, uh, three, you know. Or then the next week or two weeks later, I'll go back to a leave. And I know that's Naperson, and I can take two at a time, and I might take four to six a day. The pain goes, but I can't walk standing straight up. When I'm sitting here talking to you, I don't have any pain. If I get off the chair and start walking, I start bending forward, and that causes me a great deal of pain. I'm happy to hear that at least when you're not moving, you're pain-free. When we come back, we'll ask Dee about the psychological impact of having chronic spinal pain. I'm Dr. Paul Christo, and you're listening to Aches and Gains. Follow us on Twitter at DRPaulCristo, and like us on Facebook, Aches and Gains. Aches and Gains is sponsored by King Pharmaceuticals, a leading pharmaceutical company focused in specialty-driven markets, including pain management, and dedicated to improving and protecting quality of life for people around the world. If you have questions or comments for Dr. Christo, especially for upcoming shows, please email him at achesandgains at gmail.com. That's achesandgains at gmail.com. And we're back. Dee, tell us about the emotional impact of having chronic spinal pain. There's so many things I don't do anymore. So I used to just get on a plane because I'm an uh, officer with the Little People of America. And we have national conferences, you know, in different places every year. And 
now I'm starting to miss them because I'm just so tired trying to walk that um, I don't feel like it's worth it. That that just kills me. It's the walking. I have a cart that I use here to get from building to building, and after that first surgery, I could walk from the main hospital to the outpatient center three and four times a day, back and forth. But now, I can't walk at once. Well, pain really does limit your function, Dee. I've learned recently that little people are more vulnerable to pain than people of average height. Do you agree? Oh, yes. I, I think their pain tolerance is very high as the LPs get older more and more on carts or more and more have had back surgeries. Sometimes a neurosurgeon or an orthopedic surgeon who's had no experience with an acon back before goes in there and, you know, they run into problems because they don't have room to move around. And then, of course, the individual comes out worse because they may have hit something, you know, and they're not going to recover as well. Based on your experience, What proportion of little people suffer from chronic pain? My own uh, thoughts would be at least 75%. Wow, that's pretty high. Dee, do you feel as though pain in little people is ignored? No, I don't think it's ignored, but um, I mean, it's real. It's really there. I've I've met young teenagers, you know, who tried to keep up with their classmates and they really extended themselves in gym and they've probably slipped a disc here and there and then just put up with it. And then in the long run, they've damaged something that's not going to be repairable. Great point. Not a lot of average height people are aware of the predisposition to pain among children or young adults who are little people. In fact, tell us about your son, who's also an acon or achondroplast. Dr. Stevens taught my husband and I, how to do those exercises on our son, you know, before he started really developing muscle tone and stuff like that. And his legs stayed straight, perfectly straight. I, you know, was always aware of what he was doing. Now, needless to say, he broke the collarbone twice and touched football and and fell off a jungle gym and broke the femur. So um, he hasn't, you know, escaped problems, but um, so far the back I knock on wood. Dee, what are your friends who are little people doing to help reduce their pain? I I mean, are they receiving nerve blocks, medications, surgeries? Mostly pain medicines and more surgeries. The more pain they complain about, the more surgery they get, and then the less ability they have. Not many of them come out of that third or fourth or fifth surgery being better off than the first. Dee, what support groups are specifically useful for little people to help them with the challenges in life and, and, and pain. We have an organization called Little People of America. That's a national organization where we're all connected. We're always in contact with each other. Having a job like this at Hopkins, you know, a lot of our patients coming through here, they'll call me and then I go visit. And, uh, you know, sometimes they just need another little person to say, what works for you? I don't have the answers for myself all the time. You know, I'm I'm still seeking pain management and trying to figure out what I can do about my back to get it straight and be able to get on with life. And finally, what advice do you have for little people in pain? If it's before the pain, try to stay in shape and stay lean as possible and develop some kind of, you know, lower back strength and muscle. I don't have the answers myself, you know. I thought if I joined you and 
we we talked a little bit. Maybe your interest would be sparked a little bit about, you know, all these uh, dwarf individuals who are in pain daily. And Dean, my interest really has been sparked. And I want to thank you very much for joining us today on Aches and Gains. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. When we come back, we'll be joined by Dr. William McKenzie, who provide his insights into the best treatments for pain in little people. I'm Dr. Paul Christo, and you're listening to Aches and Gains. Aches and Gains is sponsored by Endo Pharmaceuticals, a U.S.-based specialty healthcare solutions company that delivers innovative diagnostics, drugs, devices, and clinical data to meet the needs of patients in areas such as pain, urology, oncology, and endocrinology. To access podcasts of the show, please go to paulchristomd.com. That's paulchristomd.com. Dr. William McKenzie is the chair of orthopedics and co-director of the Skeletal Dysplasia Program at the Nemours Hospital for Children. He is also the chair of the Medical Advisory Board for Little People of America. Dr. McKenzie, welcome to Aches and Gains. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Dr. Christo. Dr. McKenzie, what are skeletal dysplasias exactly? Skeletal dysplasias are the result of um, either the formation or maintenance of the skeletal structure of our body being abnormal in some way. And many of them are caused um, by genes that result in the production of cartilage or maintenance of cartilage uh, being abnormal. Of the 300 or so skeletal dysplasias that cause things like achondroplasia, how many of them are associated with pain? There are various reasons for pain in skeletal dysplasias. If you consider the discomfort associated with activity, then many of these, these, these disorders have pain. And it's for multiple reasons that we can discuss. In many respects, I feel as though this is an underappreciated and in fact vulnerable group of people who may really live with untreated and uncontrolled pain. I think that this group of individuals generally are very strong uh, psychologically. They tend to be well-motivated, intelligent individuals who work hard throughout life. And I think many of them have much more discomfort and um, limitation in function than the average stature uh, individuals in our population. Will, in your experience, when do you begin seeing kids with skeletal dysplasias complain of pain? I think generally when the kids are active and, um, and moving around, there are some dysplasias that never walk. Um, but um, the kids that are able to walk and and get around uh, when they're becoming a little more active, age three or four, uh, you tend to hear the complaints of discomfort starting about then. Which area in the body specifically then are more vulnerable to pain and surgery in achondroplasts or dwarfs? It's a genetic problem that affects growth of the cartilage, but not um, a function of the cartilage in the joints. Where other disorders like multiple pyxial dysplasia, which is also quite a common disorder, or diastrophic dysplasia, or spondylopyxial dysplasia, these disorders have um, abnormalities in the weight-bearing cartilage that wears down with time. Uh, some, some dwarfs have um, joint instability and their hips or their knees or their um, um, patellae or kneecaps can come out of position. And that can cause significant discomfort. Um, 
many of the dwarfs, because of the abnormal growth of the bone, can have deformed bones. So if you, if you have a, a, a bone that should be straight, that's C-shaped, obviously there's more stress on the bone and the ends of the bone and the joints that could cause pain. Some of the disorders like osteogenesis imperfecta and, and a few of the other disorders, the bone strength is abnormal. So we would have a weak bone that bends or you get stress fractures in the bone. And so that can cause bone pain. And then on top of that, you can have contractures, which are, can be related to the underlying genetic problem. And, and if you have significant contractures in your leg that limit the normal motion of your joints, you're going to get discomfort and pain with walking. I think many would be surprised to realize that there are so many causes of pain and discomfort in little people. I'm Dr. Paul Christo, and you're listening to Aches and Gains. So far, we've talked about musculoskeletal pain in little people, but when we come back, we'll ask Dr. McKenzie about neuropathic pain. Aches and Gains is sponsored by Neurogesics, a biopharmaceutical company focused on developing and commercializing novel pain management therapies. Aches and Gains is also available live online. Follow us on Twitter at DRPaulCristo and like us on Facebook, Aches and Gains. Welcome back. I'm Dr. Paul Christo, and you're listening to Aches and Gains. Dr. McKenzie, tell us the degree to which little people suffer from neuropathic or nerve pain. Now that you brought it up, you can have neuropathic pain. The way the bone grows, it can either result in a narrowed spinal canal, so the neural elements are under pressure and you get symptoms of spinal stenosis, and that's achondroplasia. Um, you can have um, abnormalities of the formation of the discs uh, between the vertebral bodies that can result in pressure on the nerves um, leaving the uh, spinal canal. And um, there's some disorders like st the storage diseases like Morchio, where the buildup of storage products in the body um, can uh, fill up spaces where nerves normally run and result in neuropathic pain. Like, for example, carpal tunnel syndrome is very common in storage disorders because the median nerve is compressed by these storage products. Will, which storage disorders are prone to neuropathic pain? Morchio, Hunter, and Hurlers, um, Sam Philippol. There's, there's multiple different types. How effective are these surgeries that you perform in children with dwarfism? Well, I think that in a, in a young child with achondroplasia who has markedly bowed legs and discomfort and limited endurance, um, uh, accurate alignment of the legs will result in a child uh, who is discomfort-free and not limited. As you know, we just spoke to Dee, who's had two spinal surgeries, the first of which helped her tremendously, but the second one has really not helped much at all. What is your experience with multiple spinal surgeries in little people? Firstly, Dee is a little out of my age range. <laughs> <laughs> you could tell her that if you'd like, um, but I still, uh, I still give her my advice. As you get older, the spinal canal becomes even smaller because of the aging changes um, that result in enlargement of the joints around the spine, um, the thickening of the ligaments, and the bulging of the disc. And somewhere around a quarter of kids in the second decade, so around age 15, are symptomatic with spinal stenosis. And about 80% of 60-year-olds are symptomatic. Wow, that's really a high percentage. Will, tell us about non-operative therapies to help reduce pain in little people. 
simple things like a back exercise program, yoga or Pilates, weight loss, occasional use of a non-steroidal, aquatic therapy, maybe some manipulative therapy, but you have to be very, very careful about doing that in any skeletal dysplasias. If people really understood the long-term results here, most people would would feel more comfortable about trying non-operative therapy for as long as possible. But you reach a point where your function deteriorates and you're in such pain, you can't manage your day-to-day activities and you have to have surgery. Will, among all the little people who suffer from skeletal dysplasias, about what percentage of those will suffer from pain or chronic pain? Um, higher than the, than the average stature population and probably 75 or 80%. That is incredibly high. We really need more research on helpful treatments that are specific to little people suffering from pain. As the long-term results of some of the spinal procedures in achondroplasia come out, um, I, I think we can um, be more accurate about counseling our patients as to the best management. But you know, I, my experience with many of these individuals is they've had to deal with a lot of challenges from a very, very early age. And uh, they develop psychological systems to manage that. And I think they may be a little better prepared for these periods of discomfort. That's very true. Dr. McKenzie, thank you very much for joining us today on Aches and Gains. Thanks, Dr. Christo. Aches and Gains is also available live online. Follow us on Twitter at Dr. Paul Christo and like us on Facebook, Aches and Gains. To access podcasts of the show, please go to paulchristomd.com. That's paulchristomd.com. If you have questions or comments for Dr. Christo, especially for upcoming shows, please email him at achesandgains at gmail.com. That's achesandgains at gmail.com. Here's an email question from Aaron in Willamette, Oregon. I've been on androgen deprivation therapy for two years. I've had local recurrence of prostate cancer, which was treated with radiation and chemotherapy. I'm experiencing more pain than before, but this time it's mostly at night. The pain is mostly in the ribs, thighs, and low back. Could this be attributed to the androgen deprivation therapy or progression of my cancer? Aaron, if pain worsens or recurs in patients with cancer, the first thought is that the cancer may have spread or is expanding. Therefore, I would talk to your oncologist about imaging your spine to determine whether the tumor is now in the bone, that is the spine or the ribs. Low androgen levels may contribute to worsening pain in part by predisposing one to osteoporosis and subsequent fractures. Pain mainly at night is also concerning for possible cancer. And here we have a question from Jacqueline from Los Angeles, California. Is there a certain amount of pain to be expected after surgery? And at what point should a patient be concerned and alert their doctor? Well, Jacqueline, smaller and less extensive procedures typically hurt less and require fewer pain relievers. For instance, removal of moles on the skin just need an injection of local anesthetic into the skin before the incision is made and often don't hurt later. On the other hand, surgery on the chest wall like a thoracotomy, can lead to more severe pain. So epidurals placed before the surgery can provide significant postoperative pain control. If your pain isn't controlled after surgery, then you should alert the nurse and doctor right away while you're still in the hospital or before you leave the hospital. This doesn't mean that you won't have some pain. We try to eliminate all the pain following surgery. Realistically though, reducing and controlling it is the focus so that it doesn't become chronic. 
The views and opinions expressed in this radio program are solely the views of Dr. Paul Christo and do not necessarily express the views of this radio station and Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, nor an endorsement by any or all of them of any of its content. This show provides medical information, not advice. Please consult your personal physician before engaging in any course of treatment or use of any of the techniques or products discussed on this show. Discussion of particular uses of products on this show have not been approved by any of the manufacturers of such products. Aches and Gains is also available live online. Follow us on Twitter at Dr. Paul Christo and like us on Facebook, Aches and Gains. To access podcasts of the show, please go to paulchristomd.com. That's paulchristomd.com. Aches and Gains is produced by Eric Vore and Dr. Paul Christo. Ty Ford is the audio engineer, and Elsa Langford is the technical consultant and engineer. Thanks for listening. This is Aches and Gains with Dr. Paul Christo.